Emily chattering away in the car, taking her home from Bible Bowl uh, on Bible Bowl nights back when they were living out in Broken Arrow, and, and now they're graduates. So cool. I love it. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. A very appropriate song for us to sing. Hallett didn't know uh, the topic of this morning's sermon. Larry didn't know either, but that's a song that really relates to what we're going to look at here this morning. No one likes to be weak, right? No one enjoys being weak. We don't like to be weak. We don't like to be seen as weak. We might have patience and compassion for the weak among us, or at least we should, but we have little or no patience or tolerance for weakness in ourselves. We don't like it. First time I ever thought about this was when, as a young boy, some of you may date yourselves if you remember these ads, I used to see these ads in newspapers and magazines where the 97-pound weakling was bullied on the beach and getting embarrassed in front of the girls. Who remembers this? Yeah, see, these ads were everywhere. Of course, uh, it's interesting that the ads are still around. It was an ad for an exercise program by the name of a guy named Charles Atlas. Now, he called himself that. His real name was Angelo Siciliano, and he developed a bodybuilding method and an associated exercise program, and he was known for this advertising campaign. It's one of the longest-lasting and most memorable ad campaigns of all time, as witnessed by how many of you remember these ads. According to Atlas, he trained himself to develop his body from that of a scrawny weakling, and eventually he became the most popular muscle man of his day. He was Arnold before Arnold Schwarzenegger even existed. His company, Charles Atlas Limited, was founded in 1929, actually, and it still continues to market a fitness program for the 97-pound weakling. Now, this ad campaign was memorable for a reason. When we're weak, we want to be strong. Again, none of us likes to be weak or to be seen as weak. That's because weakness implies inability, doesn't it? Think about that. Weakness means we can't. If you're unable to do something or be something, we can't. But strong implies ability. It implies capability. Strong says you can. It says you have the ability to do something. But in the Word of God, we see a real paradox related to weakness and strength. This certainly isn't the only paradox we see in Scripture. We've looked at several different ones before. A paradox is a statement that apparently contradicts itself, seemingly saying two opposite things. But these statements might be true. Even just a few weeks ago, we mentioned a few of these when we looked at receiving God's grace in vain. We looked at fully man and fully God. What a paradox that really is in our faith. And the kingdom of God being here now and not yet. Those are paradoxes, just to mention a few. Well, here's another one. Weak but strong. For the purposes of this morning's message, I'm calling this the paradox of power. When we are trusting in Christ in our weakness, that's the only time that we truly have genuine strength or power. It's never our power. It's always from God. The Apostle Paul truly understood this. He didn't like weakness either. But he not only accepted it, he actually boasted in it. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 5 through 10 together this morning. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast... 
I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, just a a little bit of background. Paul's talking about himself here in verse 5 when he says, On behalf of this man, I will boast. That's because he wasn't really entirely comfortable boasting at all. But he felt like he had to for the purpose of making his point. But he'd rather not boast except in his weakness. Yet if he was going to boast, he wasn't going to boast about those things that we'd normally be inclined to boast about. Think about this. Normally, what are we inclined to boast about? We're inclined to boast about our strength, our accomplishments, our experience. That's because our natural tendency is to think that we're perceived most positively when people view us, when people think of us as strong. And we all want people to think well of us, right? But here's the paradox. Paul knew that he did have things that he could boast about that would make him appear special, would make him appear anointed and strong and competent and powerful. These were things he could use to draw attention to himself. And then he would have been just like the false teachers, the, one that he, the ones that he sarcastically calls super apostles uh, in another part of this book. Paul spent much of the book of 2 Corinthians trying to overcome the damage of these super apostles in the eyes of his spiritual children in Corinth. These false teachers had been an ungodly influence on the church in Corinth. When he writes in verse 7 about the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he was writing about his own trip to paradise, which he very briefly describes a few verses earlier. Now, there's something to brag about. When Paul's opponents bragged about their accomplishments, about their credentials, Paul felt like he had to respond just for the sake of credibility. Yet at first, he used the third person. He's talked about this man rather than being embarrassed Uh, about the need to boast. He referred to himself as this man in verse 7 where we began our text this morning. But rather than stoop completely to their level, Paul began an extended boast, not about this amazing experience that he had actually seeing paradise, but boasting about his weakness. If Paul really thought there was some benefit to sharing details all about his trip to paradise, don't you think he would have been likely to do it? if he felt like that would benefit us somehow, if the Holy Spirit believed that would benefit us somehow, wouldn't the Holy Spirit have inspired for Paul to include that information? After all, Paul didn't hesitate over and over to talk about his conversion, his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Clearly, this experience of paradise was designed by God for Paul to prepare Paul for his missionary service. It happened for his sake. God knew the trials and tribulations Paul would need to endure. 
God knew that in advance. He knew what Paul would go through in serving the Lord. So in God's grace, he allowed Paul a greater view of the glory to come, knowing that this greater view would help sustain him in beatings, in persecutions, in shipwrecks, in all the kinds of hardships and betrayals that Paul went through during his life of service in the kingdom of God. He didn't write a best-selling book with a title like Paradise is for Real. He didn't make a movie out of it or appear on CBN or TBN. He didn't travel around talking about it. The only reason he brought it up at all was to highlight that amazing experience as the reason for one of his many trials. Paul, however, from the evidence of the text, would certainly have taken the story of his rapture to the grave were it not for the compelling necessity to boast in it for the sake of the Corinthian church. And now, as, as he does reticently boast, it is modest and restrained as he continues in the self-effacing third person. On behalf of this man, I will boast, it says in verse 7, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. So it seems that Paul might be justified in some ways in making a big deal out of this experience with perhaps a book or a press tour or a movie deal, right? But instead, what does he do? He brags on his weaknesses. We read again in 12.7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Let's note some important points about this verse. Note that Paul was very clear why he had this thorn in the flesh. He says at the beginning of the verse, it was to keep him from becoming conceited. The New American Standards says to keep me from exalting myself. The New Living says to keep me from becoming proud. The word in the original language means to lift up, to lift above, to elevate, to exalt, to be conceited or arrogant or insolent, to uplift oneself. It's the root word origin for what we would today call hype. We've heard that word a lot, right? Excessive or misleading publicity or advertising, probably in part a back formation of hyperbole from the prefix hyper, meaning over or to excess. So Paul did not hype this experience. He did just the opposite. Instead, he told the church at Corinth what God did to keep him from hyping it. Now, Paul's clear that the delivery person for this gift was Satan. But Paul's also clear that this was something that was given to him. So even though Paul saw that this so-called gift was inflicted on him by Satan, he also saw that God was involved. And he knew that God could take it away if he chose to. God gave Paul what he eventually come, came to recognize as a gift. He writes again in verse 7, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Isn't that an interesting way to put this? I mean, why didn't Paul say, I was afflicted with a thorn in the flesh? That's what I probably would have said. Why didn't he say, I was cursed with this thorn in the flesh? Why did he choose to write, there was given me? It's clear that he couldn't have thought that this was a gift at first in any way. He didn't see this as a gift. Now, how do we know that? Because we also read that Paul prayed three times for the Lord to take it away. Now, why would anyone ask for a gift to be taken away? Think about it. If you got a nice Christmas gift or you got a nice birthday gift, 
Did you ask somebody to take it away? Did you ask the Lord to take it away? Did you ask to give it back to the person who gave it to you? No. We usually think of gifts as something enjoyable and pleasant. We don't ask people to take them away. We enjoy them. We use them. Right? We derive pleasure of some sort from them. So why would Paul ask for this gift to be taken away? Most likely because he didn't see it as a gift at first. Because it was painful. Because it hurt. Now, Paul was no masochist, okay? He wasn't one to moan and groan, afflict me, Lord, I really like this. Ooh, it hurts so good. That wasn't Paul at all. No, he wanted this thorn gone. When it first afflicted him, he wanted it gone. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Many scholars think it was some sort of physical ailment, and the phrase in the flesh seems to support that idea. But others have thought that it was persecution or some sort of spiritual resistance. But, you know, whatever it was, that's not really the point here. Whatever it was, it was clearly unpleasant. It was most likely painful, probably physically or maybe emotionally or maybe both. It might have also been embarrassing. I think one reason we're not told exactly what it is is because we can all relate to this better without it being specific. If we knew what it was specific and exactly what it was, we might not relate to it quite as well as we do. But we can relate to this because we all have thorns in our lives, using that phrase metaphorically, that won't go away. We all have painful circumstances that don't change. Some are physical, some are emotional, and we do and we may ask the Lord to take these things from us. But sometimes in his wisdom, he doesn't, at least not yet, and maybe never. So it doesn't really matter for the purposes of what we want to learn from this message this morning, what Paul's thorn was. It doesn't really matter for the purposes of this message this morning, what our thorn is. That's not the point. We're getting to the point. We begin to see the point when we see God's answer to Paul's prayer. Now, I believe that God answers prayer. Don't all of us believe that? I believe that when we seek God, when we petition God in prayer, he not only hears, but he answers. But sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Or sometimes the answer comes in a way that I'm not praying for. And so I don't see it. What do we do when God says no or we don't get a clear answer? Well, Paul, for one, he kept praying, especially at first. Scripture's clear that when we don't perceive an answer from God, when we don't get a clear answer from God, continuing to pray is absolutely appropriate. Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow to teach us this lesson in Luke 18, where verse 1 says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, Paul no doubt knew this, so he prayed, and he prayed again. It's not clear from the context of the passage whether God answered Paul specifically all three times. It's possible that after the first time, Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, just didn't go away, and he didn't hear an answer for God, from God, so he decided to pray again, as the thorn, whatever it was, was still causing him some pain. It's possible that that happened twice. That is, he prayed and got no answer and prayed again. But certainly, the passage is very clear that after the third time he prayed this prayer, Whatever that prayer was, oh, Lord, please take this thorn away from me, for it's causing me pain. Or maybe he prayed something like, God, this thorn is hindering my ministry, so please remove it. But God answered specifically after that third time, and God said no 
I won't take away this thorn. Sometimes when we don't sense any answers when we pray, that's what we get. Other times God's clear with us and gives us a sense as to why he's answering in the way he is. But in Paul's case here, God said no. It was very clear. But God didn't just stop with saying no. He didn't just say to Paul, no, I'm not going to take, take away this thorn, so live with it. He didn't say that. He said two things. He said no, because my grace is sufficient for you. And he said no, my power is perfected in weakness. And here's where we really begin to get to the point of this passage of Scripture. The point isn't that Paul didn't boast like others, though Paul's type of boasting was designed to lead us to this point. It's not that Paul had an amazing revelation from God. The point certainly isn't what Paul saw in his revelation. If that was the point of this passage, surely he would have told us more about paradise than just the fact that he'd been there. After all, that's what good books and movies are made of. It's not even that we can pray more than once for something and that this is absolutely appropriate. It's not that God sometimes answers our prayers with a no answer. These are all truths that are truly contained in this passage of Scripture. And they're good to know, but they're not the main point. The point is God's answer to Paul. The answer that came with the refusal to remove that thorn in his flesh. That Paul entreated God. Paul begged God, pleaded with God to take away. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And God said, my power is perfected in weakness. The message is clear. God was telling Paul that his power, God's power, was not just perfected in weakness in general, but in Paul's weakness, very specifically in Paul's weakness. And by extension, he's telling us that it's, it's perfected in your weakness and it's perfected in my weakness. Interestingly, we see this thread of the paradox of power throughout both books of Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians both. Let me just give you a few examples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, we read, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just a few verses later, we read in verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And then we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. This is only a very small sampling of verses that we could cite in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians that reflect this paradox of power. Now, the cumulative force of Paul's repeated eloquent statements of power and weakness is meant to capture our souls and make it the motif of our lives. But what we most need to see is that power and weakness is shorthand for the cross of Christ. In God's plan of redemption, there had to be weakness, crucifixion, that was Jesus' greatest moment of weakness before there was power, resurrection power. God had said, 
He said to me, Paul wrote, and that was all that Paul needed to know, that God has said. That's what he needed to know. God has said this to me. With this, Paul learned that his thorn had a purpose, and that was enough. That was sufficient for him. With this, Paul learned that even though God would not take away this thorn, God would be with him. Even though he wasn't going to take it away, God would be with him. Think about this. It was more important to Paul to have God's presence and power than to have that thorn removed. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That's quite a remarkable thing to say. It was more important to Paul to have God's presence and power in the midst of suffering and weakness that the thorn brought than to have that thorn removed. What was the thorn's purpose? God had given the thorn to Paul to achieve for what in Paul was a very beneficial purpose, the prevention of spiritual conceit, to keep him from overhyping himself. It was given immediately or shortly after this vision he had, this experience of seeing paradise. But there was more than that behind God's purpose. We see that in verse 9. We see power is perfected in weakness. And then we see it fleshed out a little bit more later in verses 9 and 10. After God spoke these comforting words to Paul, that his grace was sufficient for him, Paul began to recognize something important. These are important things that all of us must recognize. Paul had begun to make the argument that the only thing he could boast about, the only thing he would boast about, was his weakness. But here in verse 9, that takes on new meaning. Because after God had told him that not only is his grace sufficient, that God's grace would sustain Paul, that it would enable him, equip him to stand firm in anything that Paul would experience, including the pain and suffering and embarrassment of the thorn, it was added that God's power was perfected. God's power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. Think about that. It means to complete, to mature, to make perfect by reaching the intended goal, particularly with the meaning of bringing to a very full end. It also carries the meaning that my power shows itself perfect in weakness. It shows itself perfect in weakness, meaning that it appears when the need arises and is revealed to those around us. So Paul learned, and we can learn, that not only does God walk with us with his grace and provide the strength we need when he and his sovereign purposes chooses for what reasons sometimes we don't understand, but he chooses not to remove certain trials and difficult circumstances from our lives. But the opposite is true, too. God glorifies himself and summons his power to work in us and through us in those very same circumstances that he chooses not to remove from our lives. He reveals his power. He reveals his strength in us. This power and this strength not only help us through the trial, but they glorify him. They glorify the king of kings. The word power here is dunamis. That's the word from which we get our English word dynamite. It's dynamite power. It means especially achieving power. All the words derived from the stem duna have the meaning of being able or capable. Now remember what we said at the beginning. Weakness says we can't. We're not able. We're not capable. Power or strength says we can. We are able. We are capable. These ideas are addressed very 
clearly in Scripture and very often. When we are weak, and we are weak, inherently so, especially when it comes to the spiritual. Jesus said that apart from me you can do nothing. He told us that in John 15, 5. Now that's weakness, isn't it? You can do nothing. That's pretty weak. I don't think we can get weaker than that. But we can only do all things through Christ's strength or power, as Paul tells us in Philippians 4.13, we can do all things. So here we see this paradox, don't we? We see this weakness on the one hand, but it says we can do all things through Christ's strength or power. And remember that this verse in Philippians is preceded by Paul saying that he has learned to be what? Content. He's learned to be content in any and in every circumstance. So the all things he's referring to here is coping with, it's being content in every circumstance, whether we see it as good or bad, through Christ who gives us the strength to handle it. Now think about that. How many times have you heard that verse abused? I can do all things, right? You can do all things through Christ, but what are all those things that he's talking about? You can handle the things that life brings. You can be content. Amen? So Paul recognizes, and I hope we can recognize something critical here. Paul recognized it so clearly that he was able to say to us in verse 9, most gladly, therefore, wow, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul is seeing some cause and effect here, isn't he? He's seeing that in his own weakness, the power of Christ dwells in Paul. Now, when I read this, that begged the question for me. Does that mean also that when he's doing things in his own strength, Christ's power does not dwell in Paul? I think it does. Paul's recognizing that without being weak in himself, he cannot be strong in Christ. At least it can't be perfected in him because that's what the word says. My power is perfected in weakness. So Paul's realizing we need to realize we can trust in Christ's strength or we can trust in our own, but we can't trust in both. It's a choice. His personal strength, Paul's personal strength, my personal strength is puny and useless compared to God's. That's why Paul can use words like well-content, as the New American Standard says, or delight in the NIV. Our weakness is strength, a paradox of power, but only in Christ is this true? Only in Christ. At first blush, the phrase, I am content with, or I delight in weaknesses, it's kind of hard for us to swallow, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I very rarely delight in weaknesses. I very rarely say, well, I'm content in this weakness. But when we begin to understand this as Paul did, that without being weak in ourselves, we cannot be truly strong in Christ, it begins to make a little more sense. Paul learned that having his prayer answered with a no was a greater value to him than having it answered with a yes. Let me say that again. Paul learned that having his prayer answered with a no was truly a greater value to him than having it answered with a yes. Successful service for Christ depends on a weak servant. God says he's enough. He says he's enough. That's what it means when this verse says, my grace is sufficient for you. He's enough. His grace is enough. It's all we really need. God doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. 
We might want suffering or hardship removed, but we need God with us. We need his power. We need his strength. We must take this to heart. Whenever Christ says no, or even when he says not yet, to our desperate, passionate pleadings, the no is freighted with his perfect, compassionate goodness and love. The Lord's answers to our prayers are never negative, except in a superficial sense, but ultimately they are fully positive, bringing God's unending blessing. How good for us it is when our hearts embrace this. I want to embrace this. I need to embrace this. Because you know what? I'm weak. I'm weak. This paradox of power is seen so beautifully at the end of verse 9 in our passage where it says, the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or some versions say, dwell in me. It's the same idea that's used of Jesus when we read in John 1.14 that he was the word made flesh and dwelt, literally he pitched his tent among us. So think about this. Jesus pitches his tent with his people in their weakness. Isn't that a great thought? He hangs out with us. It's the resurrection of power of God that's important to Paul. It's not freedom from pain. Paul is well content with weaknesses, not because they're desirable in and of themselves. Remember, we said Paul is not a masochist, but because it's in them that the power of Christ becomes obvious. It becomes conspicuous in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these circumstances. Commentator Matthew Henry writes, the reason of his glory and joy on account of these things was this. They were fair opportunities for Christ to manifest the power and sufficiency of his grace resting upon him, by which he had so much experience of the strength of divine grace that he could say, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a Christian paradox. When we are weak in ourselves, then we are strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see ourselves weak in ourselves, then we go out of ourselves to Christ and are qualified to receive strength from him and experience the most of the supplies of divine strength and grace. The Lord can use more of our weakness than he can use of our strength. Often our strength competes with God's strength, but that's really kind of a joke if you think about it because who can truly compete with God in anything? But in us, our strength is the rival of God's strength. Our weaknesses are much more often his servant. Why is that? Because in our weakness, we are drawing on his resources instead of our own. And we are revealing, in doing that, we are revealing his glory as he uses us. God tells us in us, his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. He's telling us sometimes the trial must endure. Sometimes the circumstances don't change. I'm sure nobody here can relate to that. But the grace will also endure, and the grace will never fail you. But more than that, through the very trial that brings us pain, God's power is manifest. It is made known. It has become visible in us, through us. The idea here is never my weakness plus his strength equals my power. Rather, it's the idea that my weakness plus his strength equals his power. Another verse highlighting this paradox of power is also found in the very same letter, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, a very familiar verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's you and me, isn't it? Isn't that you and me? We have this treasure, the treasure of the Holy Spirit in these frail jars of clay. We are frail in our physical bodies. We are frail in our emotions. But what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are we willing this morning to allow God's power to be made perfect in our weakness? Can we say with Paul that we are content in our weaknesses, knowing that in our weaknesses God uses us in a way that he cannot and will not use us in our own strength? Are we willing to see the troubling, the humiliating, the brokenness of the thorns in our lives be the thing that God uses to make us ambassadors to a lost and a broken world and a living witness to his power? Are we willing to glory in our weaknesses so that God's glory can shine through us? I tell you what, I had a week full of weaknesses, no pun intended, this week in preparing for today's message. So I want to pray with you as we close this morning that we'll find God's grace together to be enough for us in our weakness, for you and me, and that his strength, his power, will be made perfect in my weakness. Some of us are in a better place than others today, but if you're one of those who's feeling especially weak, just stand with me as we pray and close, and let's ask God to bless us by his grace with his power in our weakness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great truths that are contained in this passage of Scripture. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that when we are weak, you are strong. We thank you, Father, not only that are you strong in our weaknesses, Father, but that your power is truly made perfect in our weakness. We pray, Father, that we would cling tightly to the truth that your grace is sufficient for us. Help it, Father, daily, moment by moment when we struggle with things. Help us, Father God, to find it to be enough for us, to be sufficient for us. Help us to rest in that, Heavenly Father. And help us to remember, Heavenly Father, that your spirit, your strength rests upon us, that you pitched a tent with us, Father God, and that it's way more important, Father, that you be with us in the midst of the things that challenge us than that these challenges be lifted from us and taken away. Father, may that be our heartbeat. May that be our goal, Heavenly Father. And may your spirit work these things in us, Father, when we do feel weak, and we do feel weak so often, Lord. May your strength, be what we rely on, Father, rather than our own, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.